0: Karen Kingsbury, number one New York Times best-selling novelist, is America's favorite inspirational storyteller. With more than 25 million copies of her award-winning books in print. Karen, I'm so glad that you joined us on Takeaways today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun, Kurt. So, Karen, when we walk into a bookstore, uh, there are all these Karen Kingsbury stories everywhere on all of the shelves and people love reading them. But uh, we wanna know a little bit more about about your story. Um, could I ask you, what was it like growing up for you as America's favorite inspirational storyteller? Were you constantly reading? Were you reading inspirational books? Give us the backstory.
1: Well, I didn't really come into like a strong relational faith in Christ until I was like in my early 20s. So I was reading, I wasn't necessarily, I was reading the best things, but when I was young, it was Dr. Seuss. And that kind of Dr. Seuss sort of made me fall in love with storytelling, the creativity, the imagination that he had. I'd memorized the books like five, six years old. And I knew. Oh yeah. The The cat in the hat
0: thing one and thing two. The
1: Lorax, like the Horton Hears, all of it. So I think it was five when I first stapled together some pages and I was writing this story called The Horse, and I have no idea why. I never was one of those girls that loved horses, necessarily, but I liked them on the other side of the fence. Um, But I think every word was spelled wrong, and all the lines slanted downwards, but I had written a book, and the feeling was like nothing I had known
0: at five years old, and I was hooked. And I've been telling stories ever since. And and, uh, talk about the point at which faith in God entered the story. Uh, I know it has something to do with your husband and going on a first date with a Bible and reading Philippians? Yes. Wow. All of the that, above. That sounds pretty yes. risky on a first date. I don't know. I mean, right. if I had done that with my <laughs> wife, I don't know if she'd still be with me.
1: <laughs> he was like, he's, the way he puts it, he's great. He says, you know, he was done with the, uh, we were in LA, met working out at the same health club. He used to come in the morning. I would come at night. But on that one day, you know, it just takes that one moment. He came to work out at night and we had this like we met up. We just like, you know, caught into a conversation, knew some people in common and talked for like three hours. So that was a big kind of first meeting. And then by the end of the the conversation, he said, you know, I would love to take you out on a date. Um, Would it be okay if I bring my Bible? And I thought, Kirk, I bet he was the weirdest. Like that was the weirdest thing anyone had ever said to me, especially (laughs) in L.A. He was like this good looking guy, just you know, real athletic looking and very friendly and kind. I could, I was like, this, you know, this guy just he wasn't like a partier. I could tell. So, I liked, I mean, I was living a clean life, I just didn't have a relationship with Jesus. I believed in God. I would remember feeling like I could see God's signature on the mountains because it was so beautiful, and I knew He was responsible for that. But that was about where it stopped. And uh, so, yeah, He brings the Bible to the house like. I, mean, I don't know if he's going to bring, you know, if he's coming on a bike or I I, just, I had never heard of anybody bringing a Bible to a date, but I didn't want to lose him that quickly. So he shows up and he says, I thought we could read Philippians four. <laughs> like, I don't okay. know a Philippian, any Ippian. I'm like, what's an Ippian Philippian? I, I have no idea what this is, but I had to play it cool. So I said, yeah, sure, go, go ahead start reading. So um, we get through and of course, it's beautiful. I think I have most of it memorized at this point, but, but he's reading and I am not paying attention. I'm like so uncomfortable and it's this spiritual conviction and I'm, I'm not familiar with any of it. And um, I just knew I wanted to be done. So I kind of finally, I think I interrupted him and I said, are, are we good? Can we check that box? And then you know, and he kind of was like a little disappointed, but he's like, yeah, sure. We can go. So we went to the to dinner and the movies. And then for three months we were like back and forth on the Bible. He kept bringing it up bringing it to a date, wanting to talk about it. And finally, I don't know if you know this, Barter, but I took his beautiful, like his sister had given him this Bible, and I took this Bible that was highlighted and underlined with like little notes in the margins, and I threw it on the ground and broke it in half. So that was a low point um, in my faith journey, for sure. We were outside in a parking lot by his car, and we were in separate cars. We had met there, and he he just picked up the pieces and drove away. Kind of gave me a sad look and just drove away. So all my life I've been driving past Valley Book and Bible. It's not there anymore, but I had never gone inside because I just thought like weird, like what is that weird thing? And uh, so I went into this Christian bookstore and I I asked for a Bible in English. I just wanted I, I, my only reason was to prove him wrong. And instead, I got into the car with the Bible and a concordance, which I also bought. And, and I had been raised in a denominational faith that was, we had kind of had been marginalized by that point that we really never went to church. And just like everything I believed, I I just couldn't find it. And God was speaking to me in that car. And he was, I could hear him say like, you can either fall away with your man-made traditions or you can grab onto me and never let go. And so I grabbed and
0: I've never let go. This, this sounds like a great story. Like the, like the beginning of a great <laughs> romance story between you and your husband. Uh, you should write a book. <laughs> now, how did you become a journalist? You got, you, you, you wrote that first book at five, but then you became a journalist and then you transitioned into fiction. I mean, how did, how did that whole professional thing kick in?
1: Well, I, I think from the time I was 12, 13, I knew I wanted to be a novelist. Like I for sure knew that that was my number one choice. So being a journalist was was plan B. And I got my degree at Cal State Northridge in journalism You know, wrote kind of through high school for <clears throat> the high school paper. And then by the time I was in college, my senior year, I was, um, I was actually hired by the LA Times to be a sports writer, of all things, which what in the world? I wasn't an athlete in school, um, but I had friends who played sports and uh-huh. I had done feature stories on them. That doesn't mean I know the difference between an end zone and a touchdown. But I had to learn very quickly because I was hired by the Times to be a sports writer. Right. So off I was, you know, getting getting high school game stories and walking the sidelines. And hi, my dad would go with me. He would sit in the stands and he would take copious notes. He understood the game very well. And on the way back to the office, he would tell me what happened. Like this is what it was. Okay. <laughs> These are the people right. who made the difference. And I would take those notes. And I only had to write like an eight or ten inch story, like equivalent of two hundred words. It was nothing. But it allowed me to kind of get my foot in the door as a journalist and then that led to um, doing feature stories.
0: And then you switched to fiction. That's a big jump. Why did you get into fiction?
1: Well, because my husband and I found out we were having a baby. And so it was like, okay, now I want to be home. I don't want to work 12 hour days for a Mm. newspaper. I need to write. And my husband said, there he is, once again, the faith coming back to the surface. He said, Karen, I'm going to pray every single day that God will give you a way to write at home and make your living at home. And I just kind of rolled my eyes like that is not going to happen. I mean, I was making very little at the paper, but I, I, I sold a story to People Magazine during that time uh, that I had a, a true story that I had covered for the uh, for the paper. And it was they paid me $750. And I said, honey, I'm not going to make that. Like, I'm not going to make my yeah, living at home. People Magazine as big as it gets yeah." So, but he kept praying. He was undaunted, no, not unfazed. He was going to keep praying. And uh, the the article that I wrote for the People magazine, uh, an agent saw it, and he said, you know, con- contacted me. That'd make a great book. So I wrote a proposal, not knowing what I was doing. And he loved it, and he said, I'll be in touch. And three days before the maternity leave was up, he contacted me, and he said. Well, he goes, sit down. I've got great news. And he had gotten it into a bidding war between two publishers and allowed me to be able to. Okay, so the the advance was more than three times my annual salary. But he said, you'll only get a third of it when you sign up. I've I've got to get my 15 percent. So I'm like, just like cut through to like, what is that first check? And he said, yeah, you'll probably only get one check for the first year because you have to cover the trial. It was a murder trial. It was a sad story. It wasn't fiction um <clears throat> You'll only get the one. You'll get a check for signing the contract, and then not till you finish, like going through the trial and writing the book, could be a year before you get a second. So he said the first check, and then he told me the amount was eleven dollars and eighty nine cents more than I made a year. Well, I found myself writing what kind of what they were going through. It was really it was fun. Like I, I look back, I have no idea how I wrote two to three books a year all through the raising of our kids. So we had Kelsey three years later, Tyler. Uh, five years later, Austin. So I guess in many ways, those were kind of spaced out a little bit. You know, which helped the process. But then um, we had a five-year gap. So then we adopted three boys from Haiti that were about five years old. They were best friends, not related. Uh, we adopted them in two thousand one. So we we had we doubled our family. So with all of the chaos and craziness, was there was saying. a lot of um, a lot of sports. There was a lot of drama. There was we, the kids sang. They did theater. So those themes show up in my book. And my husband was a coach all during this time and a teacher. And so, you know, themes of from that come out of school that come from the football field or whatnot, because I was so interested. And I think early on, my first six novels probably had an awful lot of almost, um, you know, like religious freedom themes because I was so new to the word of God. And I was hearing stories about people persecuted for their faith here in the United States. And this was back in the day, you know? And so I think, you know, I have some that are about like a lawyer that fights for a woman whose husband is suing her for custody of her child because she's a believer or things like that. So I have, I have a series, I have some books that are like that, but then, you know, motherhood changed it because now I found myself writing about family and that's how the Baxters came to be. And of course, 25 27 of my books
0: are about that family. So so Karen, with all of the different truths that you could use as a theme for your next book, how do you decide which ones you're going to use?
1: Yeah, the Lord shows me. It's just funny. I feel like I am an emotional detective. So I'm a detective of the emotions, meaning when I'm out and about in a conversation, you know, at a dinner, whatever, I am always listening and I'm paying attention. We have a sign. That sits a little wooden sign in my kitchen. It says, be careful what you say you might wind up in my novel. And actually, <laughs> there's a little bit of truth to it. I mean, I don't ever write anybody's story, but, you know, just like, I, I mean, I'll tell you an example. So I'm at the airport and I'm getting ready to go somewhere and there's this man and this woman and there's maybe a six-year-old little boy. And the body language is off. So the little boy has a backpack on and he's with the he's with the dad and he's just close to the dad and, and and he's not happy. And then there's a woman and she's like three feet away and she's kind of eye rolling and not, she's uncomfortable. And I'm like, okay, so split family, mom and dad, this is not the mom. This is obviously like a stepmom and the boy must be returning after spending the summer with the dad. Like I'm, I'm kind of writing the story in my mind. And so it gets more and more, like, dramatic and more emotional. The boy doesn't want to go. You have to go. I'm so sorry. And so the dad's trying to help him with positive, you know, peppy talk. And then the flight attendant comes and says, okay, you know, it's time to go. So the dad walks with him till he can't walk with him anymore. And they take the boy down the jetway. And the man turns around, and he walks over to this wall. Everybody's kind of watching. He faces the wall, like nose to the wall. He puts one arm up and he just weeps right there in front of everyone. And I thought that is a picture of divorce right there. And it was so, so sad. And I wrote a book called The Time to Dance about a marriage of 27 years and how they were wanting so much to make it work, but it wasn't gonna work and they were gonna tell their kids that they were gonna get a divorce. And in the end, they remembered that they used to dance on the end of their pier. They live on a small lake. Um, and they'd forgotten to take time to dance. And of course, from Ecclesiastes, a time to dance. So the idea of the sacred nature of marriage uh, became the theme of that book. So God put that in front of me. I'm wiping my own tears. I'm, I'm, I'm getting on a plane watching this little boy still crying, you know, by himself in the seat, little card pinned to his shirt. And I just thought, it's not like you gotta make it work. You gotta find a way, I mean, get help and, and have a conversation or whatever. But, so I wrote about that. So that's, that's the kind of thing that happens. I, God puts things right in front of me and it becomes the basis for a story.
0: I find it interesting that we read fictional stories uh, or we watch fictional movies, and yet somewhere in the back of our minds, we expect there to be a moral to the story. We want to walk away with something that's not fiction, but actual truth, nonfiction, as though the story was real and I can put myself into it and take away a real truth. Um, what do you think that says about the way that God made us and the value of storytelling?
1: Well, Jesus, you know, he was such an, a complex and beautiful example of what we're supposed to be and, and, and aspire to. And he was so complex. I just thought he was diverse in the way he talked to people and the way he approached situations in life. And I think when he wanted to tell you something straight, he would just tell you something straight. When he wanted to make a point, he might turn over a table. But when he wanted to touch your heart, he told a story. And he was the original storyteller, even speaking the world into existence. You know, this Mm. is a grand story as well. And it's a short-lived story, even if it's, another thousand years. It's just a story. It's just a journey that we have a choice of which part we want to play and how we want to approach our role in it. And so I think it's very much like Jesus to be able to tell a story that maybe people pick it up to be entertained. Maybe they pick it up looking for something. But what happens is the truth comes in through the back door of the heart and your walls are down. So the story ends up being the thing you remember, and it, it's life-changing. Um, we just had a, a documentary done on uh, Montford Prison. So Montford Prison is in Lubbock, Texas, in the middle of nowhere. And one of the guys there, one of the, a volunteer chaplain brought my book, um, Angels Walking, to the prison and got one of the guys to read it. And this was all, of course, unbeknownst to me. And by the time this chaplain wrote to me, 400 men in this unit were reading my books like, like, ravenously, like, these are not my demographic, you know, when you think about storytelling, I don't think I'm writing for a a guy who's serving 10 years in a prison in Texas, but 400 men were, were not just reading the books now, but getting baptized, and coming to faith in Christ and crying in their cells and passing rolls of toilet paper back and forth. So we just did a 10 minute a 10 minute documentary on the miracle at Montfort because that's how God uses story. And so I went there to meet with the men and got to do a worship service with them. And it it was amazing. Like it's just mind blowing, but it's not me. If God puts a story on my heart, my thought is he has somebody else in mind. And so I need to obey, write the story best I can with his help. And then somebody else will have a life changing experience because of it.
0: Karen, uh, how has regular Bible study impacted um, the creative process for you? Has there ever been a, a, a eureka moment where you're thinking, oh, this is exactly what I've been looking for? Or maybe a, there's a there's a, a creative block and Scripture's provided a breakthrough?
1: Always. I mean, Scripture is just, it's everything. It's, you know, the living Word of God is always going to be the source for me of storytelling. And, and I don't ever look to be like, it's never, it doesn't usually work where, I read a verse and I think, oh, that would make a great, you know, a, a great book. It's usually the other way around. God gives me a story, puts it right in front of me, and then a verse is like right there. And it's or a sermon. And I'm like, my goodness, that is exactly what I needed. Um, Forgiving Paris was a recent book, and a, a character people would know well that read my books, Ashley Baxter, was going back to Paris to face some really bad decisions she made back there a couple decades earlier. And, and her husband tells her about, well, this was literally, because I'm writing the book, already writing the book. And I have church on Sunday and, you know, go, go to church. And, and the pastor talks about how when Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee, it wasn't just that boat. that was The boat that he was in is not the only one that benefited from it. Hmm. There was a storm and there was a lesson and there was a calming of the storm, but there were other. And I think it's in Luke that it says there were other little boats on the lake that day. So I was like, other little boats. That is what I need in this book. That's the thing. Like the bad things that happened to her in Paris, the bad decisions that she made. But what about as God calmed the storm, who else was helped because of it? What are the other little boats? And I began to look and it became a theme in the story because of a sermon and because of the word of God. So that's constantly happening to me.
0: Karen, as an actor, I'm always thinking about... uh, which role should I take next? Or uh, as a movie maker, documentarian, uh, what, what story is really worth the time and the energy to tell? Um, and I seek God for direction. How do you seek the Lord in the stories that you want to write about?
1: Well, you know, the, the Bible, the older you get, it's funny, I find this, that the older you get, Proverbs just is so filled with beautiful admonition to ask for wisdom and the value of wisdom the value being greater than gold or resources or anything we could have is the wisdom of God. And I'm so thankful for that because yeah. that's what I pray for now. I mean, I'm not praying for houses or, you know, I mean, not that I was ever praying for that, but you know what I mean? Like it was the things that you think that are important when you're younger. Now it's, it's just wisdom. So I ask God, I'm like, please, when you ask him for wisdom, he is coming around and giving it to you. That will happen um, that's the prayer he wants us to have is father. Like, let me align myself with what you already know to be true. Mm. And please give me your wisdom so that I make the right decision on what is next, whether it is, you know, I mean, we've had big decisions with film and movie as well, movies as well. Um, several movies that were made on my books along the way through the years. And now we just opened Karen Kingsbury productions and just finished filming our first movie. And that was a hu- absolutely guided by the Lord. Um, uh, I look at it like, you know, in baseball, they throw the 98 mile an hour fastball and you don't have time to think about that when that comes and it's the perfect ball and it's coming right at you and it's a perfect pitch. You hit it. Yeah. And you, that's only you're going to get a home run. And that was we went into 22, not thinking we were opening our own production company. But my husband came to me one day and he said, God has laid this on my heart so clearly. It's time. And so the two of us pulling together, everyone we know, um, it was just, it all landed right at the same time. But that's the wisdom of God. That it, and only get that by, you only get it by asking him.
0: Karen, do you ever put yourself into any of your characters? Because I do that as, a, as Mike Seaver was basically me, um, except he was funnier yep. than me because he had a, a band of 12 writers who was always writing his jokes. <laughs> I, I wish I was that good at that. But essentially, <laughs> um, that was me sneaking out of the window uh, when my parents w- yeah. were not looking, that was me cheating on the, the math test by writing the answers on the bottoms of my shoes. Are there characteristics of your characters that just come from your own real life? Well, my first book
1: was called where yesterday lives. So this is the first novel without a contract. The one I was talking about earlier, where yesterday lives is about a dad, a dad passes away um, early in the book from a heart attack and his five adult kids need to come back to their small town in Petoskey, Michigan in this case to deal with his funeral and to deal with the fact that they've become more estranged and they aren't close. Um, I was going through a lot of tension and a a lot of, you know, different, there were struggles with some of the siblings in our family and my dad was smoking and he wasn't healthy. And I was like, he was alive, but he, my dad and I are very, very close. And he had always been the biggest cheerleader for my writing. And so I didn't want him to die young. And, uh, so I, I kind of like everything about that book, the lead character, her name is Ellen, is me. There's no question. All my siblings can see themselves. It was sort of one of those things where I thought, well, you write what you know. And I knew that I wanted a loving relationship with my siblings. At that point in time, I was you know, a newer believer. Um maybe five, six years into having a strong faith. And I wanted my siblings to join me in that journey and they hadn't and they have now, which is, I mean, such a miracle of this side of that. Uh, It's beautiful. But anyway, my dad used to say the, you know, rumors of his demise were greatly exaggerated because he was actually still alive, but yeah, sure. I mean, there's no question that you end up finding yourself that certain characters had draw some of your own qualities, tendencies, and others are just completely, I mean, God puts them so alive and so visual in my head, and it's just my job to capture them.
0: Karen, uh, you and your husband Don have been married for over 30 years now. Um, Chelsea and I are also celebrating over 30 years. Can you talk a little bit about about how the covenant of marriage relationship has uh, developed and refined you in your writing process?
1: Yeah, you know, I I think, first of all, having a praying husband, I mean, you know, our marriage has had its ups and downs as well as anybody else's, but I would say the hardest part came at the three-year mark of all things, Mm. and God saw us through that. It was really a selfish time, I think, for both of us, and um, Kelsey was just a baby. No, we had Kelsey before we had her. When did we have her? I guess two months after we celebrated our first anniversary, so we didn't mean to be having kids that soon, and it was just kind of a lot and he's more of an introvert than me, so sometimes I wanted to go do stuff and you know be at a wedding or whatever he didn't necessarily want to go it was we just were like it was silly things um, and when we got past that, we made a decision that should have been an obvious decision, but my husband led this we went to the beach, we stood on a cliff like overlooking the water, and it was at an, at a park somewhere off highway one in California. And we just made a covenant, like a renewed covenant before God, that the word divorce was not going to be part of our vocabulary. And then my husband took it to the next level and he said, and since we're not going to get divorced, there's no point in fighting. So I'm just not going to fight. I'm not, We're not going to fight. I'm not going to, I, we can disagree and I'm just mm-hmm. going to, we can talk it out or whatever. None of this mean we haven't had our, you know, whatever, that we things we disagree on, but it has been really beautiful. Like since then it's been just an incredible thing. So we're, I draw strength as a writer and as a creative um, from being married for 33 years is that my husband is the prayer covering over our home and over our family and over me. So I feel safe. I feel safe to be able to create. I don't have to worry like what's going to happen next month or maybe he's having an affair. Those aren't thoughts that go through my head. So he wakes up and he walks around our home and prays. He prays over me. Um, I usually am more of a late night owl, so I'll sometimes still be asleep and I'll wake up and he's praying over me. Like that happens. I talk over storylines with him. So I'm safe with him to be the best friend that you want to have in your spouse. And I think, you know, to do that, you have to pour into it. It's funny, back at the three year mark, some of the older women at church, which is how the older women at church should respond, asked me if I would be part of a Bible study called how to be the wife of a happy husband. At the time, uh, I wasn't like really resonating with that title so much. But I knew <laughs> that that was right. <laughs> I knew that I needed to obey these older women and join. So I did. And, and it taught you things like compliment your husband. Like if it's just taking out the trash that you can find to compliment him for or showing up to it to or whatever, compliment him. Don't worry about whether he's complimenting you. Put Check that at the gate. Just, you are not. that's not what it is compliment him, build him up, because it's only as he is filled that he can then spill that over onto you. And that's been a a great teaching. I'm so glad I did that Bible study. Um, That has made an impact on us, you know, for the good since then.
0: And at this point in your career, you're also able now to be working with your kids. Did you ever expect that you would be working together with your children? And what's that been like?
1: Well, I I love my family so much, Kirk, and I know you feel the same way and you can relate with this, but Um, when as an author, you don't think initially that that's also going to mean speaking and touring and like kind of like being out there. But that is what it means. And the higher up, you know, that you go and the more books you sell, people want you to speak. So, I mean, I've spoken on large platforms and went on, you know, been able to be on parts of Women of Faith and Extraordinary Women and different tours like that. But I've never done that without my family. So when it first began, I would say, can I bring my husband or can I bring my daughter? And so by the time she was 18 and she's 33 32 now it's so about time she was 18 she was full-time working for me you know while she was going to school she went to community college um, first and then went on to do uh finish her college at the university of portland but because we we had moved up to washington state at that point but the kids just as they kind of came along and i spotted that tyler was a writer and he was a director early on i could see that in him So um, by the time he was out of college, he came on as a staff writer and he began to do things like put together initial screenplays on some of, you know, some of the books that I had. And it was a training mentoring process, but we just wrapped our first movie and he was the director. He was was totally ready. He's 30 years old. He directed his first feature film and he was so, so good at it. it. It was just like the honor of my life to stand back and be like look at him. Like how beautiful is how that? Great. And then, you know, EJ, another one of our kids, he's running. Are you were seen uh, ministry that is where people they sell the cards also. They're, they're just cards that you carry with you and you give them out to people and you say, you were seen by me today, by God always. And so EJ is in charge of that. He does fulfillment and marketing um, for, for you were seen, but in the movie, this was a, the movie was one of the most amazing things. So we didn't like to say, we didn't know we were going to make a movie this year, but Um, We did the movies called Someone Like You, based on my book, Someone Like You came out in 2020. We had me and my my husband was doing everything from locations managing to crafty to PA. EJ was being a PA. Austin, our youngest son, he was an actor in it and also helping move boxes and just like helping us with company moves and whatnot whenever we had that. Kelsey and Kyle, uh, daughter Kelsey with her husband, Kyle, are my design team. So they were over building the new website for the movie and keeping all these social media going. Hmm. It was incredible and yep. so fun because it doesn't feel like work if you're working with people who are not only family, but your best friends.
0: How do you find yourself praying for your kids now? I mean, they're they're adults. You know, little little kids make little mistakes, and the the impact is kind of minor. But once they become adults, the impact is big. It can change. It can wreck their whole life. Uh, How do you find yourself praying for your kids? And you pray differently for different kids. Some may be walking more obviously, closely with the Lord. Others are still maybe trying to find their way. But they're you, you want them both to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. But you're praying for different things.
1: I think, you know, It's first of all, it's knowing your kids and listening to them. And I think one of the things God's placed on my heart as I've gotten older, for sure, is to listen more. You know, that's a switching that happens when you're raising kids. Because when they're little, they need to listen to you. You're the one that has the wisdom to teach them. God has placed you in their life for that reason. And so it's important to pour into them and listen to them, too, when they're younger. But the older they get, the more they're. you have to know their hearts. You have to hear them. Listen, I think um, we talk about expecting the best of our kids. So I I think it's easy to kind of come into a situation thinking, oh, there must be something wrong here. Why did you do this? Or how come it looks like that? And what does this mean? And instead, I think a a great approach would be like Philippians, go back to Philippians, chapter four, um, to, to not be anxious about anything. But in everything, your prayer and petition with thanksgiving to pray. So one of the things that God's placed on our hearts is thank him first. So first the child comes to mind, you know, Austin. So Lord, thank you so much for his passion. And thank you for the way that he tells other people about you. And thank you for his giftings. And Lord, now I just want to ask that you bless him and that you protect him um, and that you bring to mind the next thing for him. So, you know, I have I have at least well I have three sons who are single that haven't found their wife and that's on their bucket list, like they would like to be able to meet that person, uh, that girl in in their life. And that hasn't happened yet. So it's very specific, which requires knowing your kids and thanking God first for them, even the ones that aren't necessarily walking, you know, where you want them to be right now. uh, It's important to thank God for them. And then to trust him with the process
0: Karen, do you ever find your ability to tell stories and create characters uh, are a disadvantage to you as a parent? Do you ever find yourself going up to your kids going, you know, at this point in the story of your life, uh, a good character (laughs) would make that choice, not this choice. Like, believe me, I know I'm Karen Kingsbury. I know how this story would really turn out well. (laughs) I actually have, and probably shouldn't have,
1: but I actually sometimes have said the words, if I were writing the story,
0: that's right.
1: You know, that's right. But I try not to make that like a pointed thing. That's more like when I feel sorry for them, like if something's happened and they're like, yeah, this like, this didn't work out or, you know, if I were writing the story, it would have, you know, it would have been, it would have worked out. But yeah, I, I, you know, I think, I mean, I think it's always a disadvantage in some ways, especially if your mom is this like successful person, because you, especially as a guy, like they're growing up going, well, I have to be more successful than my mom. Like surely. Um, even like on the movie set, we had 55 employees and cast and crew where we made a major motion picture. It's an exciting process, and Tyler being the director, he called me Karen, and that is the thing you should call me, because in that role, it's a very professional role. He needs to be respected as a man, and I was on set every day. I was acting very much the producer role, um, as much as the executive producer, and I needed to respect him and to respect that process. So, do you think it comes? I say I say it this way. You you can write to this because you're my kids because me and dad are your parents you'll have more doors to walk through than someone else might but it's going to be you have to walk through it better than anyone else because the bar is so high so i'm sorry that's what it is but that's what it is and now we'll just you know do it together and you don't and you can choose not to that's okay you can choose to take like you said like you know door c
0: yeah (laughs) Uh, Karen, one of the things that I also love that you're doing is you're pouring your time and your energy and focus into the next generation of storytellers. And you're inspiring them in their work. What what do you love about that kind of work?
1: Well, you know, you see these people, they're so close. Like they've got a story and they just need the tools. They'd be like, Kirk, if you wanted to take a trip and you knew exactly where you wanted to go, but you just didn't have a car, you just needed the way to get there. Yeah. So I feel like it's time, you know, after all these years of writing so many books to be able to pour back in. I've got, I've been doing this conference called Believe, and that happens in Franklin, Tennessee, but there's only about 100 students that can come to that. Um, but we go through a three-day intensive and they learn 17 different courses over that time. About how to write a great novel, how to write a best-selling book. Uh, some of them are nonfiction that come, and I and I just go through everything as simple as like never say the word "ask" or "said" in your book. That's a practical tip. There's no need to say "ask." The question mark does that. So when you're going to have a beat, if I say, um, you know, "Kirk looked across the room. Where are you going?" Question mark. He asked. We know you asked. Where are you going? He turned and faced the door. You know, whatever. Like you have to give him something else. You have to give your characters some other action or emotion or beat, because you're weaving together everything that they see and think and feel and hear. And there's no way you're going to get a good story out of it if you waste your words saying "asked," you know, and "said." So, you know, when quotation marks and question marks will do that. So, practical tips. But then, on the other hand, you know, how do we dig deep? How do we find the layers? of writing that will touch the heart, and that's more nuanced, and uh, and it's exciting to tell them. Um, Liberty University has the Karen Kingsbury School of Creative Writing, so that's reaching more people, and then I'm planning to take the Believe course online um, sometime in the next six months.
0: People sometimes send me scripts and go, I've got this great story, you know, and, 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 they're, and they're writing something, and sometimes I, I'm not sure if it's a good story. I don't know what makes it for a good story on the front end, but on the back end, if I read a great story, I know it's great. I saw a a little documentary that I saw. I was ugly face crying by the end of this 20-minute documentary. And I said, this would make a great movie. And so we went and made the movie. When you're teaching the next generation of storytellers, um, how do they identify what is a good story?
1: Well, we talk a lot about cutting things that aren't necessary and getting the interesting things up front. Realistically, you're not going to keep somebody to the end if it's not interesting at the beginning. Mm. And so we talk about grabby, you know, having an opening. Like I look at every single chapter when it comes to writing a book. And it's and this is the way with a movie too. Every act, um, every scene really has to grab you from the beginning and leave you wanting more at the end. And that's a tension that you have to create in your writing that doesn't answer all the questions up front. Um, that allows, uh, this is sort of where the journalism comes back. Because in journalism, you needed a creative, grabby lead and what they called a tag at the end of a story. So, and they kind of need to connect. So every single chapter that you write in a book is a story unto itself. And so if that piece does not keep you reading, I always say, hey, read one chapter. And if you aren't interested in going on beyond that, then don't, because you have better things to do with your time. So it's, you need to be in a peer review, practically speaking, you need a peer review group to be a part of. And I think with my um, Believe school, I'm going to provide that for people that it costs a lot of money to pay someone to edit. And they may not even be the right person to edit. But if you get a peer review group of like eight or 10 other writers and you all agree to read each other's manuscripts, you're going to find out some real truth about whether you have an actual grabby story. And, you know, Twitter, if you look at Twitter, Twitter helped us to learn how to write tight. You only had, it was 140 characters. So if you use that mindset to your to your writing, whether you're writing a you know a short speech or a nonfiction or a novel, you don't want get rid of what you don't need, get rid of a dead weight. It has to be interesting. Only write about the tens and the ones, the most exciting and the hardest, hardest part
0: and keep the the
1: middle part out.
0: Talk about the the importance of discipline in writing. We often think about writing being uh, full of creative juices and inspiration, but then there's also the reality of deadlines and word count. How do you strike the balance between discipline and creativity?
1: Well, I can't say I've mastered it. I I mean, even now, like, I thought there would, somehow there would be a time in life when it would just be me and my laptop just sitting there, and it's not, I'm glad it's not. Uh, Now that we have, uh, you know, Kelsey and Kyle have four boys, seven and under, so we're over there all the time. so discipline is a real thing. you for me, I'm super another gift, like just a gift that God's given me, and I'm so thankful as I write very quickly. So if I have if I have ten days, like two weeks, and I work dedicated on the book, and if I really like shut everything out, put on some inspirational music, silence my phone, put it in another room, um, I can write a novel in two weeks. so that's that's how I could do two to three books while I was raising the kids is I would work at night and I would just suffer the price, of, you know, not having a lot of sleep, but I would work starting maybe at eight or nine o'clock and work till, you know, one in the morning. And then the few hours while they were at school and, and get it done, but you have to schedule it. And, and I tell that to writers, like it's not just going to happen. Yeah. Um, you have to put it in the calendar. And just like if you were having a meeting with your, you know, financial person or your doctor, you would show up, for that meeting, then you have to show up for yourself and for the story if you're actually gonna get it written.
0: But if it's so creative, how can you schedule creativity? There's gotta be times where you feel like I'm exhausted, I'm tired, or uh, you know, I just put the kids down for a nap and I'm not feeling it right now. How do you get the creative yeah. juices flowing? Inspirational music? Chocolate?
1: I, I mean, I think the music makes a big difference. I can't listen to music with words, like lyrics, until I'm in the second half of the book and then I can play anything. Kids could be playing basketball. I I can put my headphones on and just hear whatever it is. And I'm just in the story. I'm so in. But the first half of the story, it's harder. And there are those times when it's hard to just sit down and start writing. For me, the answer to that is an outline. Um, I I outline everything I write and I outline it very specifically. So I've already, my characters are already totally um, investigated. And I have a description page uh, for each character. So Mm -hmm. I know them, Mm -hmm. I know the birth dates like to eat what they like what's their struggle what they're afraid of i know the characters and then i write and i write the sort of a synopsis of the story and then i flesh it out into 32 pieces and each one of those pieces i know whose point of view it is when it is where it is what's happening wow and if i can just read that that's my inspiration and that usually will unstick you pretty quickly because it's like well that's what i'm writing if I were just to sit down and try to swim across the ocean and write a book without an outline,
0: there's no way I wouldn't be able to do it. Wow, that's really encouraging because I think from the outside, we just look at you and we say, like, you're just a genius. You just wake up in the morning and you just start writing and then a book materializes. But there really is planning and thought and discipline and hard work and outlines and all of that kind of thing. That. That, that's really encouraging. It makes something like that doable uh, for us. We think, like, maybe I could do this. I, I, I could do something like Karen's doing. Um, Karen, what about the role of community in writing books or, or any kind of creative process? Uh, do you like to go into your cave with your noise-canceling headphones and, and play your piano music and write? Or is it better for some people in community? Is it different for different people?
1: it's different for and even for different even for me like it's different for different books there were times when i would go away for a few days and say you know this is me one of those times when i just need to go i I loved going to santa monica for some reason that was like a go-to um there's a hotel there lowe's hotel and i would just go get a room that had a view and just write for three days i could write my fastest i ever wrote a book was four days but I could get a big chunk of work done if I could just get away for a few days. And I didn't, I mean, I didn't do that often, but I, that was an option at, at times when I was like just not finding the time because life was so crazy. Yeah. But I think um, sometimes I love a coffee shop and I love the noise and the chaos. And then I put my headphones on with my music and I'm just surrounded. There's something about that that relaxes you and lets you like fall into the story. Um, other times, I had a for a while. I rented a little apartment in Franklin on Main Street, and I would just go there and pretend I was in another country. But it was at least only ten minutes away from home, um, and just have the quiet and solitude, and just feel like I was in France or something. And I was writing, so I, it, you kind of have to just think: if if I'm not inspired sitting home by myself, then let's try a coffee shop and kind of look right. for ways to mix it up. Yeah. So you to. The noise of life drowns out and you can
0: focus on the story. Karen, some people might say, you know, I'm not a writer, so I I don't really know anything about what you're talking about and I'm not going to worry about writing. But isn't it important that each of us understands the the story that God is writing for us so that we can tell that story to others in the form of our own testimony? Isn't there an exciting story that each of us needs to be able to tell?
1: You know, when I'm speaking to, you know, 10,000 women or whatever, I, I often do it. One of my favorite talks is, you know, I, at my funeral one day, I do not want people standing there talking about my books and about, you know, the, how many books I wrote or anything. I want them to be talking about the story that I wrote with the days of my life. That is the most important story. Like my dad said, you only have one chance to tell that story. And I tell them about four different tips and it's love well, laugh often. And when I talk about the laugh often, I have stories that people are on the floor, they're laughing so hard, but laugh often, you're going to laugh about it later, laugh now, it's going to make your story much more beautiful. Um, Look for the miraculous, because we're just so tempted to just be stuck in the deadlines, drudgery and decisions, and we march our way to Friday. That isn't how God wants us to live. He wants us to be looking for the miraculous. So, So love well, laugh often, look for the miraculous, and then live your life for Christ. Because at the end of the day, every story needs a hero, and Jesus is the hero. He mm. is. And so if we, just, if we just give it over to him, if we let him be the hero, we get into the passenger seat, and he's driving, in the story of our life, even through the darkest scenes and the darkest chapters, we will find our way safely home. We will have that guaranteed happy ever after, and only Jesus can give us that.
0: When we look at the dark things that happen in our lives, when we see people struggling with miserable things, hard things, difficult things, when people encounter uh, dark dungeon experiences. Um, Does your skill as a storyteller and then thinking about God as the ultimate storyteller help you to understand the difficult things that are going on in our lives in the world?
1: Well, you know, Kirk, there's John 16, 33. In this world, you will have trouble, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. And in our family, we have shortened that to saying it's just earth. You know, when you when you look at it that way, when you have an eternal perspective on it, it's just earth. And so we just follow what God wants. And when things are, are difficult to try to remember that, that he says, blessed are the lowly, like blessed are the ones who are struggling, you know, and we were just reading James 1 the other day in our Bible study, and it talks about how considerate, you know, a pure joy when you're going through trials. That's hard. It's not the joy that says I'm laughing because my home got broken into or because a child died or something. It's not, it's a deeper joy that says I know it's temporary that what I'm going through, whether it's somebody, um, you know, mocking me for my faith or whatever it would be, whatever yeah. it is, He is with me, the truths that remain. We're not alone. He is with us. Mm. And this is not the end.
0: Amen. Hi, I'm Kirk Cameron. Thanks for listening to this episode of Takeaways. If you love the conversations that we're having, please follow or subscribe to this podcast to never miss any of this great content. And please consider leaving a positive rating and a review to help others like you discover this show.